Andrew, over to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to see you guys. Thank you very much for staying. You've heard me once already this morning, so that's very brave of you. Thank you so much. Is anyone here from either of the churches at which I've been a pastor? Is anyone here from Eastbourne? That's actually quite loud in two chunks. Zeke's there. Sorry, that's very good. I've embarrassed my son. Um, is anyone here from King's Church London? Yeah! Oh, yes, of course you are. Sorry, I didn't. That's Harrison. I've never seen you in a hat. Okay, I'm sorry. This, we're just going to have a family chat here. Okay. Um, so we are looking at the question, why believe in God in a scientific age? And I'm going to try and help you by means of an introduction based on a survey that we did in the church in Eastbourne a few years ago. We did a poll where we asked our town, what are the reasons why you don't believe in Christianity? Or you, you, assuming you don't, why not? What are the objections you have to Christianity? And then we did a, a teaching series out of it. It was really fascinating. We've got hundreds and hundreds, I actually don't remember how many, many hundreds of replies from all sorts of different people in our town. But a bunch of them were, were actually about the issue of science. I imagine that's a question for you, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And I want to give you a few examples of some of the things they said. They'll appear up on the screen as we're going. First objection was this. How misinformed, have you got the slide? Yeah. How misinformed and uninformed Christians in England generally over the age of 30 are about topics such as evolution and the Big Bang. Being asked by my university educated medical professional stepmother, who's about 45, if we came from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? In all seriousness, is unbelievably depressing said this person. So I'm just, I'm, my objection to Christianity is Christians don't know anything about science and they just make stupid statements about it. That's what this person said. Second question was a bit briefer. The uh, objection, this person simply said, creationism versus evolution. As in, either God created the world, all things evolved, can't be both, and clearly we know things evolved, so there's no need for a creator, right? That's, the, that's why they object to Christianity. Third objection, the theory of evolution is really quite compelling. And I struggle to accept that there's another likely scenario where the world and all its glory is created by another means. Although the word glory is interesting there, I thought. You can't argue with the presence of fossils and scientific evidence to suggest that we've evolved over millions of years. Next one. Why is all the evidence in Darwin's theory of evolution ignored by creationists? So there's a theme, right? People are going... I don't, my objection to Christianity, not for everyone, lots of people, it was other stuff, suffering, sexuality, stuff. But a lot of them said things like this. And they said, so why, why Christians just don't, they don't seem to see that the evidence suggests that there is no God. Christians are just willfully stupid. I think some of them were basically saying. One or two others were not about evolution. They were about the fact that you can't do experiments to prove God, which is true, so they had nothing, this person wasn't so much evolution, but they said this, Christianity, their objection is, it's unscientific. Things shouldn't be believed because of 2,000 year old anonymous secondhand eyewitness testimony, which if you want to put it this way, is what I've been preaching on the last few mornings. But they're saying you can't believe things because history doesn't tell you anything. The only thing that tells you anything is science. If you can't do an experiment to prove it, it shouldn't be believed is what this person is saying. It shouldn't be believed because of eyewitness testimony or personal revelations or dreams or because an old book said so. Things should be believed because there is repeatable, independently verifiable, independently verifiable evidence. Now, some of you are bright and you've already spotted the problem with that particular statement, which is that you can't do any experiment to prove that statement. 
This person is saying you should only believe things that for which there is independent, reliable evidence that you can demonstrate scientifically, but you can't do a scientific experiment to prove that statement. In other words, they believe that in spite of the fact they can't prove it scientifically. So I think there's a bit of a, an issue there, but a lot of people do think like that. You might, I don't know, it might be your question will come up later. And obviously, if you took that statement seriously, you would not only end up with no theology, you'd end up with no history, no philosophy, no arts, no humanities, probably not even languages. You wouldn't be able to study most of the things you study at school. And you might go, great. But in the end, all you'd be left with would be maybe maths, although even then I'd have questions, physics, chemistry, biology, everything else, no. Certainly not the social sciences. And I think that's a problem in that it would limit human knowledge to be so small. You can't really believe anything. You can't believe that the sun will come up tomorrow because you can't actually prove that it will scientifically and things like that. So we might come back to that later. I think the pithiest objection we had was this one. It came from Carl Sagan. And he, they, this person just simply quoted Carl Sagan on his objection to the, to the thing. It is far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion, however satisfying and reassuring. Which is true. But it raises the question, how do you know whether you're grasping the universe as it really is? Or persisting in delusion? How, how do you know which you're doing? I agree, you shouldn't live in a delusion, but how do we know that? How do we know whether we're being delusional or not? It's very possible, isn't it, that my friend Glenn Scrivener puts it like this. He says, you can basically... People in the West either believe in the virgin birth of Jesus or they believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos. You have to choose your miracle. Yeah? You either, have to, you either believe in basically Christianity or you believe in a view of the world in which the universe was born from nobody and out of nowhere and suddenly came into being. But either way, you've got to choose a miracle. And it might be that it's, this one's a delusion rather than that one. Maybe they both are. Maybe neither of them are. How would we know? So those are some of the objections we had. And I find it fascinating because behind those objections, behind the question even, why would you believe in God in a scientific age, there is underneath it the idea that you have to choose between believing in God and a scientific age. Like those two don't match, is the, that's the assumption, isn't it? Or you have to choose between Christian belief and Big Bang, Darwinian evolution, etc. You have to choose. That's the premise behind all these comments, isn't it? One of them can be true, but not the other. You can't believe in evolution and Christianity or some variant on that. You may have seen, you probably have seen, the Darwin fish. You've seen this before? You're driving along, there's, uh, there's another version of it with the dinosaur in there and so on. But the, obviously the, the joke is, well, you know, they, Christians put fishes on their cars, so we'll put a fish with feet and put Darwin in the middle, ha, ha, ha. It's the way it's, you can't be a Christian and an evolutionist, and obviously if you're gonna choose, you wanna choose evolution, because science, that's the, right, you've seen these. Some of you may have, have them on your own car, I don't know. So my aim this morning is to try and show two things. The first thing is that there is no necessary conflict between Christian belief and evolution by natural selection. Whether you believe in evolution or not, you don't have to believe that there's a conflict between them. And the second thing I wanna show you is that our current scientific understanding fits better with belief in God than with atheism. The currently, what we know from science, fits better with theism, belief in God, than atheism, not belief in no God. 
I'm not gonna get into, well, science proves Jesus rose from the dead. Of course it doesn't. Science, if someone tells you that, they don't understand what science is or what the resurrection is. That's not how knowledge works. Science sheds light on this particular set of things we can study, but doesn't shed any light really on these things we can study. Like the life of Julius Caesar, or the plays of William Shakespeare, or the music of Beethoven, or the resurrection of Jesus. That's just not what science can do. It could shed a lot of light on some things and no light whatsoever on other things. And that's great, that's how knowledge works. It's just worth being aware as we go on. So those two things, no necessary conflict between belief in God and evolution, or Christian belief and evolution. Secondly, our current scientific understanding fits better with theism than atheism. That's where we're going. Happy so far? Turn to the person next to you and tell them one of the two things we're gonna do. One of those two things. You've already remembered, you, some of you have forgotten one of them already. Turn to the, do it, you're not doing it. Turn to the person next to you, we're gonna do this. I'm looking forward to that. I already have a question. I'm gonna properly yell at him about the fact that he just said that. First thing, there is no necessary conflict between Christian belief and evolution by natural selection. Millions of Christians today do not believe in evolution by natural selection, Darwinian evolution. Millions of Christians do. Probably, globally, there are more Christians who don't. I've don't, never done a survey, actually, I don't know. I expect so. But there are millions who do. And probably on this campsite, amongst leaders on this campsite, amongst in your church, amongst the leaders in your church, you would probably find that some people do believe in evolution, some people don't, and some aren't sure. And some don't care but they're not in this seminar, so we won't talk about them. But that's probably what you'd find. You'd, yes, I do believe in evolution. Well, I believe in some evolution. Not, I don't think it explains everything. Some, I don't believe in it at all. You'd probably find a range of views in your own church, maybe in your own youth group, in this room, I'm sure you would. And I just think it sometimes surprises some of us to hear that a Christian leader might say, you can believe in Christianity and evolution, whether or not you do. I've, I've taught this for years and I've just found it quite interesting. I so I'm not gonna tell you whether you should, I'm just gonna say, I think you can, some people do. The Pope believes in evolution. Official Catholic dogma has accepted evolution since 1950. The late Tim Keller, who some of you will be a name, like a, as close, I suppose, as evangelicals have had to a Pope in the last 10 or 15 years, he believed in evolution. It, which doesn't mean you should, and it doesn't mean everyone does. It's just interesting that lots and lots of very thoughtful, committed, Bible-believing Christians say, oh, I believe that evolution and the Bible are compatible. Not only that, but many on the scientific side, many people who have made their name as scientific experts, fellows of the Royal Society, professors at Oxford or Cambridge, the guy who headed up the Human Genome Project and then was hired by Barack Obama to run the NIH in America, He's an evangelical Christian, not just a Christian, a guy who believes the Bible, believes that Jesus rose from the dead, believes in miracles, shares his testimony. But he's like, oh yeah, 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 I believe in evolution. His name is Francis Collins and we'll quote him in a moment. They believe in Christianity and evolution. So on the Christian side, if you like, and on the science side, lots of crossover. Now, you might say that's incoherent. They're just being stupid. And my question would be, well, why is that? Why do you think that's true? Why is it incoherent to believe both evolution and Christianity? You see, for a Christian who believes in evolution, asking why would you believe in God in a scientific age is like saying, why do you believe in kissing in an age of microbes? 
Or why do you believe in love in an age of hormones? Right, anybody here aware that you have hormones? Anybody here aware that the experience of falling in love with somebody is heavily bound up with chemicals in your body? Anybody here prepared to say that because they believe in hormones, it's incoherent to believe in love? Probably not. I hope not, actually, for your sake and more so for your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife's sake. In reality, we'd say, no, I I think you can believe both in scientific chemical processes and in personal agency at the same time. I think you make decisions every day that are the result of physical forces but that are also genuinely personal commitments and the same is true of many, all belief systems actually, certainly Christianity. So to me, the Darwin fish is a little bit like somebody was to put up the, like the hormone heart. Imagine a broken heart with hormones written across the middle of it going, ha, you people who believe in love, you don't know, but actually it's all just a result of hormones making you feel like love, but it isn't really being in love. I think I might say to someone like that, well, I don't think you have to trade those two against each other. And I think you will lead a much thinner life if you don't think you can believe in one without the other. I think you need both of those things. And there are many Christians, again, you don't have to believe this, but there are many Christians who do believe that evolution is the means by which God created everything. Just as cliff erosion is the means by which God created the cliffs near my house, the beachy heads. Just these, you know, the sheer white cliffs of, you know, the white cliffs of Dover, which are usually, little Eastbourne point here, the white cliffs of Berlin Gap in the movies. They're never filmed at Dover because Dover's got a horrible port in the middle of it. Sorry if you're from Dover. So they filmed them somewhere else near my house. But anyway, those cliffs are formed by sea and cliff erosion. That doesn't mean God didn't shape the cliffs. It just means there's a natural process. And in the same way, many Christians would say, evolution is the means by which God created the diversity of life on earth. Many Christians would say, no, that's not right. And then others would say, yes, it is. No, it isn't. The point is you can believe it. And the only reason you couldn't would be if you thought that it was incoherent to believe that a scientific process could be used by a personal agent or with personal intention to achieve something. But I don't think there's any evidence for that second claim. And we can talk about that in the questions if you'd like to. So I don't think there's any necessary conflict between Christianity and evolution. I think it raises questions about how you read Genesis and that's important. But there's no inconsistency between the belief that Jesus is alive and evolution happened on on their own terms. Events have physical explanations, but they have personal ones as well. So if I'd walked onto the stage this morning with a black eye, let's say you were in the previous meeting, you saw me preaching about bread, you had a break for 15 minutes, you said, and I've now got a black eye, you would say probably, wow, what on earth happened? He's got a black eye now, and an hour ago he didn't, so what's going on there? And I might say, well, what happened is my, my skin collided with a, a more powerful, more robust object than itself, and as a result, capillaries around my eye began to burst and swell, and that's created the sensation of blackness, which you can see now as the skin rushes to repair itself, you would say, that's not what I meant. When I said, how did Andrew get a black eye? I didn't mean, what's the scientific process behind it? I meant, was there any personal intentionality there? I was like, oh yeah, it's because when I got off the stage, Joe Mack was offended about what I'd said about him and he just punched me in the eye. And you go, okay, now that's a different kind of explanation of the same thing. Now, one of them doesn't rule out the other. They're both true. One is a purely scientific description and the other involves intentionality, human agency, 
I'm not saying one of them requires the other, I'm just saying they can both coexist and they do all the time in the world you live in and the decisions you make. So, step one, I think God and science or Christian belief and evolution or whatever you might say are complementary and they can be if you, if you don't think there's a biblical problem with doing that, I think they can tell the same story. So that's the first thing I wanted to claim. We're halfway through, okay? You still with me? Turn to the person next to you and say, well, actually, I'm gonna give you two minutes. You can turn to the person next to you and say, that raises this question for me. Or, yeah, I've, I've always thought that. Or, I've never thought that. Or, I can't believe he's allowed to say that. Or, I wanna ask him this later, or whatever. Just turn to the person next to you and, and process what I've just been teaching. Okay, very good. Okay, so step two, second half, in some ways more important, but we'll talk about whatever you want in the questions and, I'll, and right through till 12.30, we'll take whatever questions you have, okay? Um, but the second claim I wanted to make is more important in some ways, which is that our current scientific understanding, best we know, fits better with belief in God than with atheism. Now that is a bigger claim in some ways, and it might sound like it's harder to defend, and maybe it is. But I think that the currently, what we know scientifically, fits better with belief in God than with atheism. I believe, and I wanna explain why. There are two, we'll take two rival stories for how the world is as it is. There are many others, but most people in Britain don't live with them or don't, don't believe them, so I'm gonna leave them for now. There's plenty of others in other parts of the world. But in Britain, the two main stories that people might believe here, roughly, one of them held by Christians, Jews, and Muslims, the other one held by atheists, and lots of people in the middle going, oh, I don't know, a bit of, bit of, bit of each. But the two rival stories go like this. One, there is an eternal, infinite, good, loving creator who is the ground of being who create for everything else. And we call him, or it, God. And that's that belief. And in that belief, mind creates matter. There is a spiritual being who lasts forever, who's eternal, who's outside space effectively, who creates material world. Mind creates matter. The other story is the opposite. The other story is, no, there's no such being like that. Everything we see, every emotion, every thought, every feeling, every experience of love, every piece of information, every word is ultimately simply the result of impersonal, undirected forces of chance and time. They can't be personal because there's no God. They can't be directed because there's no God to do the directing. And therefore in that story, ultimately everything you are is simply reducible at the end, when you bottom it out, to collisions between atoms. It's or subatomic even. And in that view, matter creates mind. The material world creates the sense of consciousness, which is very hard to explain, but let's say you believe that. You've got matter creating mind on this side and on the God side, you've got mind creating matter. Those are your options that we're talking about in this seminar. There are others, as I say, but we won't go into them now. And my claim is that our current understanding of the world fits better with that story than with that one. It's better with the mind-created matter story than with the matter-created mind story. And I say that for four reasons. Ready to walk through them with me. That's why I think mind creates matter is more plausible than matter creates mind. Reason number one, the existence of something from nothing. The fact that 
there was nothing and now there is something fits better with belief in God than belief in no God. The virgin birth of the cosmos is how I described it earlier. If you rewind 30 billion years, there is nothing. You rewind 20 billion years, there is nothing. You rewind 15 billion years and there is nothing. 13.7 billion years ago, suddenly and for no particular reason, an entire universe explodes into being from nowhere. That's the current assumption. It didn't used to be. 200 years ago, people thought the universe was eternal, but now they don't. They know that the universe had a starting point, a singularity, which began everything. And therefore they're saying, well, hang on, if that's true, we don't know what's before it, but we've got no absolutely nothing before this that we've got any reason to believe in. So if we've gone from nothing to something, and not just by the way something, but a very, very large, dramatic and intricate universe, that belief, I submit to you, fits better with the idea that mind created matter than that matter created mind. It's very difficult to understand how nothing, I mean, you've got some scientists tie themselves in knots like this. If they're atheists and you do, they, you have these hilarious statements sometimes where people say, something can and will create itself out of nothing. And statements like that, we think, wow, okay, we've now left science, started talking about philosophy and not very well. But that happens. People engage that. You think, okay, we, we might need to think that through and probe that assumption. But my suggestion is that if we didn't know much else, and we knew that we had nothing, 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 something, and all of this, that, even just that belief would fit better with belief in God creating than in belief in no God. That's the first reason I think it's more plausible. Second reason, not just something from nothing, but we now have order from chaos. This is sometimes called the cosmic welcome mat, the idea that it looks like the world is set, or the universe is set, for life and for human life at that. So I mentioned Francis Collins earlier. He headed up the Human Genome Project and mapped the human genome. He's one of the smartest guys, scientifically speaking, who's ever lived, really. Um, but this is what he said, and I just, it's a good quote, so I just want to put it on the screen for you. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe it looks as if it knew we were coming. And if you read around this subject, you'll find, I think that's a quote from Freeman Dyson, but it's a, there's a, a lot of people will refer to this phrase. It, looks, it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants that have precise values, physical laws, effectively, physical numbers that have to be what they are. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce there would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. Which is widely known, and you read about it online, you can Google the anthropic principle, you can look it all up. And effectively what it's saying is the fact that the world is as ordered as it is, the fact that matter is able to coalesce, and that there are galaxies and rocks, let alone that there are people. We're not talking about people yet, we're just saying the fact that there is stuff, the fact that there is ground, stars is extraordinarily unlikely if there is no guidance whatever in the process. So imagine you have no God and no designer, simply chance and time. It's like the idea that, and I've used this illustration loads before, but the illustration of like you're playing galactic roulette. You're going all 15 of these numbers could be any one of a million or million, million, million different things. And all of them have got to be exactly right for the universe to come into being. 
and you are now playing galactic roulette. You've got this enormous wheel with a million numbers on it, and you spin it round and put the ball onto it, and it goes, it lands on the right number. And you say, the strong nuclear constant. Wow, one in a million, that's cool. The earth is still possible. And you go to the second one, and you spin it, the weak nuclear constant. That's right as well. And then you go around to the next one, gravitational force, dum, dum. And you go down all, this is what Francis Collins is saying. All 15 of those numbers have to be exactly what they are. And you go through 14 of the 15 and you get to the last one. And the last wheel doesn't have a million numbers on it. It doesn't have a million million numbers on it. It has 10 to the power 60 numbers on it. It's called the cosmological constant. And you get to that number. So that, that is, in other words, one with 60 zeros numbers on this massive wheel the size of the solar system. And you fling the ball onto that. Having got 14 in a row already worked, you put the number onto the 15th one. Yes, we have life on the universe. And then it tips to the next one. It goes, duh. no, the universe is gone. And McDonald signs flying through the air and exploding into balls of fire. And the stars implode. And the drains hoover up everything. And the universe disappears. And you've got to go back to the beginning. John Polkinghorne, fellow of the Royal Society, formerly master of Queen's College at Cambridge, um, he said this, can we put the quote up? For us to be possible requires a balance between the effects of expansion and contraction, which at a very early epoch in the universe's history, the Planck time, has to differ from equality by not more than one in, now I'm sorry about the font problem here, because that says one in 1,060, but that's wrong. It's meant to say 10 to the power 60. It's just the fonts got lost when we transferred it. So he's saying that this little number has to be what it is to the degree of accuracy of one in 10 to the 60. One with 60 noughts. Million, 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 million. The numerates will marvel at such a degree of accuracy. Are you numerate? Are you marveling? If you're marveling at the accuracy, could you stroke your beard, please? I know you may not have a beard. Okay, some of us are going, I'm not marveling because I'm not numerate. I don't, I don't, that's a bit patronizing, to be honest, John Polkinghorne. So I'm going to move on to the next. For the non-numerate, I will borrow an illustration. Academics talk like this sometimes. They go, if, if you're numerate, I'll tell you this. If not, I'll paint you a picture. But that's what he says. I will borrow an illustration from Paul Davis of what the accuracy means. He points out that it's the same as aiming at a target an inch wide on the other side of the observable universe, 20,000 million light years away and hitting the mark. You're marveling now, right? Strokey beard or not. Order has come out of chaos. Now, if you have no God, that's astronomically low odds because that has happened simply by chance. If you have a creator God, it's not unlikely at all. You say, God goes, I made the universe and I wanted it to be like this. My favorite statement actually of this comes from two famous atheists. Is anybody here born in September 2006? Yes, sir. And you, excellent. So in September 2006, I think it's when it was released. It's only when I first saw, I think it was the release date of Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And when you open The God Delusion, I remember being in... Uh, Trafalgar, on Trafalgar Square, there's a Waterstones there. And I went and opened the God Delusion and saw on the inside of the, of the book jacket, it had a quote from Douglas Adams. And again, that might, quote might appear now. It said, and, and it was like, this is, the, this is the, the, the money quote for the book. Isn't it enough to believe that a garden is beautiful without having to believe there are fairies at the bottom of it too? Now, 20 years ago, Richard Dawkins was a very big deal, very famous guy. A lot of people your age would know of him and might have read him. There might be less true now, but it was then. 
Isn't it enough to believe a garden's beautiful without believing there are fairies at the bottom of it too? So Douglas Adams, who said it, Richard Dawkins, who quoted it, going, there you go. God is a delusion. It's like believing in fairies. And I thought, that's a very interesting quote. Because no, having a beautiful garden does not make me believe in fairies. What does it make me believe in? Gardeners! It makes me believe in gardeners. It makes me believe in people with agency and intelligence bringing order and beauty to the land. That's what separates a garden from a desert or a wilderness or a scrubland. And so when you look at gardens and you think, okay, of course I don't believe in fairies. That's not the analogy. The analogy is I believe in gardeners. And so my favorite statement of the reason why order from chaos makes you think, wow, I think a God view is more plausible than a no God view. My favorite statement of it comes from two famous atheists. I've been forever grateful to them for making the point so well. Third, so we have something from nothing, order from chaos. Third reason I think the God view's more plausible than the no, no God view is the existence of life out of non-living matter. And this is sometimes known as the monkeys at the typewriter thing. So I want you to guess, don't put the slide up yet, okay? Don't put it up yet. Can I ask you to guess how long, you know the sort of monkey taps of the typewriter and eventually you'll get Hamlet, Shakespeare, right? You've had that, but you've come across that, that idea. So in other words, the unit, people say that about life. They say, well, of course, life, human, living cells are unlikely without God. But if you leave it long enough, eventually atoms will assemble themselves into cells and you'll get life. So I like asking this question. How long would it take a monkey typing at a typewriter, one keystroke a second, to type, not the works of Shakespeare, not even Hamlet, simply the phrase, to be or not to be, that is the question. How long do you think it would take a monkey, one keystroke a second, to type, on average, to be or not to be, that is the question. Anybody want to guess? I won't be able to hear most of you, but can anybody, some of you guys down there, anyone want to guess? Five years. 30 years. A century. What's that? Sorry, 10 to the power of 80, he says. Okay, that's, we're getting, he's, he's closer. He's not actually numerically closer, but it's a very good guess. The answer is, 12.6 trillion, 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 trillion years to type to be or not to be, that is the question, on average. Of course, he might get it right first time, but that would be preposterously unlikely. Now, a string of DNA is a lot more complicated than the first line of Shakespeare. It, a string of DNA has got about as much information as the Encyclopedia Britannica-ish. And we're being asked to believe that by chance that happened in the space of just 600 million years without design, without God. Now, if you have an infinite eternal creator God, the creation of life is not unlikely at all. If you have no God, it's unbelievably unlikely, although of course people are left saying, well, it must have happened because it did. But I think you can see that if you didn't know whether there was a God or not, and you simply looked at the reality of the existence of life, what you and I are doing right now, breathing, thinking, seeing, you would say, wow, that's a stretch. And then the fourth reason why I think belief in God is more plausible is because of the emergence of consciousness from non-consciousness. So we have something out of nothing, order out of chaos, life out of non-living matter, finally, consciousness out of non-consciousness. Which is really the question, why do you think? Why is there such a thing as thinking? From an atheist point of view, the existence of consciousness is a problem. Again, as I mentioned, even Richard Dawkins admits that. 
he says in his book, where he's debunking belief in God as he sees it, he says, actually, the development of the eukaryotic cell is an even more momentous, difficult, and statistically improbable step than the formation of life, which is the one we just did with the monkeys in trillions and trillions of years. And Dawkins says, that's not even the worst one. It's even harder to explain how you get a eukaryotic cell. And then he concedes, and then the emergence of consciousness is another major gap, quote, whose bridging was of the same order of improbability. So you're not just believing that the virgin birth of the cosmos, you're also believing 50 galactic roulette wheels, and then you're believing the monkeys at the typewriter, I mean, that all happens in a very short space of time and makes DNA, which is far more complex than the first line of Shakespeare. And then you're believing in the development of the eukaryotic cell at an even bigger leap of disbelief, and then you're believing in the emergence of consciousness. In other words, even the best atheist scientists out there agree, admit, that the development of consciousness is staggeringly improbable, assuming there is no God. But again, if there is a creator God, it's not improbable at all. In fact, you would expect the kind of God revealed in the Bible, a God who is loving, creative, desires relationship, wants to make creatures in his own image, you'd expect him to create all of those things. Order, beauty, life, consciousness, thought, love. Now I should say for this point, this is not proving God from science at all. It's certainly not proving a Christian God. All it's doing is to say that given what we know from science, the Christian story fits better with what we know than the atheist story in my view. And it's obviously you'll have to decide whether you find that convincing. So return to our opening question and then we'll do some, lots of questions. Why believe in God in a scientific age? And I've tried to do two things. Effectively, my answer to the question, why believe in God in a scientific age is, why not? Why not? Firstly, our scientific age has produced nothing that conflicts with Christian belief, rightly understood. Doesn't have to. You might, you might find it attention. We'll talk about that, but it doesn't have to. And secondly, there are a number of features of our scientific age that actually fit better with a theistic view, a belief in God, rather than an atheist view. Those four things I've walked through in this session, something from nothing, order from chaos, life from non-living matter, and consciousness from non-consciousness. Now that still leaves a lot of questions open. There's loads of things that you might wanna ask, and we will. But if you're looking at Christianity this morning, you're thinking about it critically, I really take my hat off to you. Some of you are going, I'm not sure I believe this. I wanna find out. I get quite animated up here. I'm doing this a bit like a preacher, partly because I'm talking to a lot of people and partly because I know that you spend a lot of your life with people who don't believe any of this and they mostly are the ones who teach you. So I feel like I have, an, I have half an hour to go, here's a different way of thinking. I know that's not the main story that our culture believes, but I personally find it much more convincing and I wanna suggest that you should. And thank you so much for giving me your attention for that sort of 36 minutes. And what we're gonna do now is take as many questions as we've got time for. We are gonna do a hard stop at 12.30. Um, so thank you for your attention. Thank you for your applause as well, actually. Um, you're very kind. As I say, I've been preachy and shouty. I won't do that when you ask questions, okay? I wanna take every, every question really seriously. I just, I like, I just kind of a bit of fun to make it a bit animated. But so if, what we have is a microphone there, microphone there. Uh, on, the, on the two lines, and it's basically first come, first served, and we'll, I'll go from side to side as long as we have until 12.30, okay? So if you're nearby, you get a head start, but bully for you.
Yes, sir. Um, so, would you agree that the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ is maybe the centerpiece of Christianity? But doesn't that sort of contradict basic scientific understanding? Because people don't generally rise from the dead. Okay. Very, very good. Okay, great question. So, you believe the resurrection is the centerpiece of Christianity, doesn't that contradict science? And I would say, I don't think it contradicts science at all. I think it is simply outside of the purview of scientific research. I think the, what science does is it studies normal physical processes, right? And the way that the world works pretty much all the time. But what it can't do is to tell you whether or not anything ever happens that is not within that purview. The analogy that's often used is the analogy, Alvin Plantinger, a philosopher um, in America, uses this analogy and he says, it's to say that would be, say that science must be able to have a view on that and therefore because it, science can't study it, it, it isn't real, is like a drunk man who's lost his keys, who's looking around for the keys under the lamp because he says, well, the light's better here and if it was over there, I wouldn't be able to see it. In other words, what science does, it says, I can see these things very clearly and I can study them in a lab and very accurately and praise God that they can. But what it can't do is study things that are outside of its remit. So again, science can't tell you whether Julius Caesar invaded Gaul. And it can't actually tell you whether Hamlet's any good. It can't tell you lots and lots of things and it wouldn't claim to. So I think science effectively has also got, like theology, it's also got bounds to it that it says we are very good at talking about this stuff and not at that stuff. And the resurrection, were it to have happened, is obviously outside of that purview because firstly, it's a historical event and secondly, it's miraculous and therefore not subject to... It's not, it's not meant, no one believes the resurrection is a repeatable event scientifically. That's not what I believe at all. So I think it would, if it were to have happened, it would not be one of the things science can study. That's my, that would be my argument. Thank you, so it's a great question. Thank you for getting us started with the, re give it a ripple of applause for this man. Because uh, first question is always a bit nerve wracking. So, yes, madam. Hi, so I was just wondering if you were aware of this theological, theological perspective called God of the Gaps, which is basically where God is used to explain certain gaps in scientific understanding in the natural world. So what are your opinions on this argument and do you think it's an adequate argument to prove the existence of God? Um, uh, that's a very good question. Thank you. Let me give a ripple of applause for her as well. That was a great question. So God of the gaps is, effectively what we do is, I mean, it, to be honest, no one really constructs faith that way. In reality, God of the gaps is usually a way of criticizing a badly formulated view of theology by someone who probably doesn't share that perspective. So it's normally a term of criticism rather than a, no, I don't know anyone who ever goes, I'm a, I believe in God of the gaps. That's not normally what happens. I do think that, so the claim is that God of the gaps is that people believe in God because they use God as a way of just explaining something they otherwise couldn't. And therefore the more science explains, the smaller the need for God becomes. That's the argument. Um, and for the reasons I've just given, actually, I don't, I don't think that is the reality at all because I think there are, um, I think it's John Lennox who uses the language of good gaps and bad gaps. There are some things that just, it's trivial to believe, oh, we can't explain that, therefore God did it. That would be a trivial and silly move. But there are other things where, like I said, the existence of order from chaos or the formation of life, I still think is, is actually a good gap. I think it, it should at the very least, if science is going, we don't have an explanation or rather we do, but we just think it's phenomenally unlikely, but wow, it seems to have happened. That's actually a good gap in, in the sense that it makes you go, why? Right? It, it doesn't necessarily indicate stupidity to say that is a reason to take God seriously. It might at most just say, well, if that's all we had, that would lean us towards some sort of creative input. I don't think you can do science that way. 
You, you, if you're in a research lab, I've got a friend who's a, a sort of nanobiologist. You, you can't sit in the research lab going, I wonder whether God will do this today. You kind of have to do the experiments mindful of God's providence, but aware that you've actually got a lot of work to do using normal processes. But you, know, so you can't do science that way. But I do think that there are various gaps, including the ones I mentioned, which at the very least should make us wonder, okay, does that actually fit with an atheist view or not? You're not doing science though when you do that. You're doing philosophy and theology which I think is valid. So, yes, thank you. Yes, sir. Um, it's not as good as a question as the last two, but um, I was going to ask about um, aliens and what are your opinions on that and how come it says nothing about that in the Bible? And also in, because obviously in America quite recently, the guy came out under, under oath and said that they've like, they've come into contact with them. So that's what I was going to ask, just yeah. your opinion. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. In America, particularly, they're very excited by the possibility of aliens and they're always talking about it and making TV shows and um, broadcasts about it. So, firstly, the, the first question is quite easy. The reason the Bible, were there to be, and I don't know if there are, were there to be any other forms of life out there in the, size, in the cosmos, the Bible would have absolutely no reason to mention it because the Bible's not concerned with what's happening on the other side of the universe and no one who read or taught or believed or studied the Bible for the next N thousand years would have anything to do, they, they simply wouldn't understand it. They'd say, what on earth are you talking about? Why would anyone care that this was true? It's like, to be honest, I'd go much further. I'd say the Bible doesn't talk about Australia. Now, there's no Australia in the Bible. No one, no one in the Bible times knew Australia existed. And, but writing about Australia would have been pointless for them because they're like, what, what possible difference does that make to my life? Aliens, that's much, much, much more true. And we still don't even know if they're out there. So that's, that's, the, that's the first half of your question. And then the second half is, were we to discover that there was extraterrestrial intelligence or life somehow? And there's obviously lots of debate in the scientific community about whether we could and how that would be verified. I think C.S. Lewis had a lovely line on this way. You know, 80 years ago, he's thinking this stuff through. And he says, okay, well, let's say we knew that there were feeling, thinking beings on another planet I would simply have to conclude that he has been there too, which is just a lovely line, which is really to say, the Bible is not talking about what God is doing. Maybe, maybe God, maybe that's what, he wrote the Narnia stories to explore this in some ways idea. Maybe there are other dimensions of reality. If there were, that wouldn't jeopardize faith in creator God. It might indicate there were some things God was doing that I knew nothing at all about, but that would be fine by me. So that's, a, I hope, a helpful thing in the meantime. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, excuse my voice if I crack up a bit. Uh, celebrating my church winning the football yesterday too much. So, um, I don't have an issue explaining my disbelief in evolution or the Big Bang. But what I was sort of struggling with was the problem of non-reluctant non-belief. So people, people that have been searching to find God a, la a large amount and been reading the Bible and want to believe in God, but they get no response. I think that's the, something I've struggled to understand. Yeah, okay. So I'm very happy to do that question. That's obviously not particularly about the scientific thing, but that's, that's fine. Um, so I think, the, I think I'll say a couple of things. The first thing is, I, are you, I mean, presumably you're talking about people who have heard the Christian message and are look, rather than people who are like, got no concept of God or, or no concept of the Christian God, but it's somewhere else. Um, so 
I think the only, answer I, the only answer I can give is not so much as to explain why it's a thing, but rather to say what somebody in a position like that would and should do from a biblical or Christian point of view. And so one, one of the things that seems like it's a very obvious thing that people often don't do because they do this whole thing internally um, is go to church. Now, and I don't just mean go to church once and visit and peer in and go, did God zap me? But actually become part of a, a Christian community. It's a bit like if you were saying, I'm gonna try and teach someone how to become a vegan, you might firstly, or become a, you know, come off drugs or whatever. You might say, well, actually there's a thing you have to decide to do, but there's also a community you have to join. And so you'd look and say, so what, have the, what, is the, what do Christians do to sustain faith? Well, they don't just believe. They believe that's a, start, that's a doorway in. They get baptized, they, they take communion, they join a church, they pray, they worship together. They, and so effectively, if someone's saying, I really want to be a Christian, but God hasn't done anything yet in my life, you'd actually, you'd, at that point you'd say, well, the only way to do that is to start, is to say, I'm gonna, but Jesus said, we heard from Simon on the first night, follow me. And actually if someone says, well, I'm not gonna do that really, I'm gonna wait and see if, if, I, if something happens to me to make me follow you, in the end, they say, that's just the, that's the wrong way around that Jesus comes and says, follow me. And at that point, you have to decide either I, I will or I won't. And the ways in which we do that are through the normal spiritual habits that we probably talk about all the time. Praying, Bible reading, belonging to church, communion, all those sorts of things. So I think if someone was saying, I really wanna believe in God, but I'm, nothing's happened to me yet, I'd say, okay, go to church, read your Bible, pray, study, talk, talk to people about your questions, your doubts, all that. I would effectively, I'd say, go on Alpha. I mean, I would effectively do all of those things. And I think if somebody is genuinely searching, scripture says these people, they will find God. But I think often what we want is to have an answer before we go in, in pursue the search in earnest. We wanna be confident before we waste our time. And often the most important things in life aren't like that. That's not how you find marriage partners and often rewarding jobs. And it isn't how you find God either, I think. So great, thank you so much for the question. Yes, sir. If God and evolution do exist, then what does that make of the seven-day creation story? Great. Okay. By the way, just want to talk, have we got anyone here who can help just adjust mic stands? Because the people asking these questions are of very different sizes, and that's fine, but it might just be a bit unfair on them to be you know, faffing around. Thank you. Um, so I think, it, so under an evolutionary view, you... I think you have to ask the question, what is Genesis, in any view actually, you have to ask the question, what is Genesis 1 trying to do? And what are the days trying to do? And there are a whole bunch of different views. I've written a whole series of articles online at my, on my Think Theology blog, which go through the 10 different ways of reading the relationship between Genesis and science, and it might really help you. It's called, if you Googled me and creation science or scripture and science, you'd, you'd find them. And what I do is I map out 10 models going, wow, from the very sort of, Earth was created 4,000 years before Christ in an instant in six 24-hour days at one end through to full-on evolutionary theories at the other end and then go, there's lots of bandwidth here. Here's the strengths and weaknesses of each. I wrote about six or seven articles like that, which might be what you, you might need to follow up in more detail. The short version, I think, is that Genesis 1 is written by and for people in the ancient Near East and we have to understand what they meant before we start saying, how does this fit with our scientific understanding? An example that I often use, I think is really helpful, is when they say the greater, and greater light and the lesser light, 
they are not thinking of what you and I mean when we think of the moon. They don't know that the moon is a lump of rock. They don't know that the moon reflects the sun. They don't know that the moon is revolving around the earth, which is then revolving around the sun. They just don't know any of what we, they don't know that it affects the tides in the way that it does. They don't know there are craters on it. They don't know why it always seems to have the same face shaping us. They don't know why it turns on 28 day cycle. There's so many things they do not know. And so when they use the word lesser light, we have to understand what they meant. They mean there's two lights. One's big, one's small. This one's in the daytime, this one's in the nighttime. And not try and project all of our current scientific understanding onto the author who is writing for people who simply don't think that way. It's a little bit like the question about aliens or Australia. They, they just wouldn't have a reason to talk like that. And so we have to read Genesis for what they meant and then go, okay, this is, in my view, this is a telling of a story about how God created everything that exists using a very familiar temple construction story that many ancient people would know all about. And it's not mainly about how long it took at all. Um, but those articles I wrote might really help you if you wanna dig into it a bit and they'll signpost you to some more serious books that you can follow it up more if that helps. Is that okay? Thank you. Um, well, kind of off the last question, but I was gonna ask if you had any book recommendations that someone could read to educate themselves more on it. Yeah, okay, um, that's a really good question. And there are obviously loads and, and it's like, and obviously a big question is like, it depends on the level. So I'll start with shameless self-promotion. So my book, If God Then What, is like a, I hope a fun apologetics read. It's like, let's say you don't believe in anything. Chapter one, how do you come to believe in anything at all? Chapters two and three, how do you come, I think it's them. How do you come to believe that there is a world and that it's like the, what, what I've just done? And it's sort of an imagery to try and help you think through what science tells us. Then we get onto miracles. Then we get onto evil. Then we get onto the cross and the resurrection and what we do next. So that I, my book, if God then what? My, if you like this, you might like that, right? But if you want, I'm assuming you want more serious stuff. Like I want to go deeper into these things. Is the main interest on the sort of the scientific apologetic stuff? Or is it main integration between faith and evolution and those questions for you? scientific side. Okay, so the second, the second one, sort of integrated. So um, I recommend a couple of books. I think, so one is a book by John Lennox called God's Undertaker, which is a great, it's a really good, he's, he's an Oxford professor, debated Dawkins a number of times, very, very bright man, good communicator, written really well. Um, and I found that really, it's basically, is science God's undertaker is the idea. So that's a really good read. Um, Francis Collins, who I quoted earlier, has written a book called The Language of God, and he's coming from an evolutionary perspective, and that's really good. I think if you're trying to work out, if you want to go quite deep into it and work out, so at its best, how might evolution and creation fit? Dennis Alexander has written a book called Creation or Evolution, Do We Have to Choose? It's interesting for being the book with, in my view, the worst front cover that's ever been produced on any Christian book in 2,000 years. But it's got a man's nipple on the front cover. I mean, it's just like the most bizarre cover. Sorry, Dennis, if you're listening. Um, but the content is really interesting as a deep dive into how this might work. And so those might be three titles it'd be worth starting on. But it's the kind of thing that once you get reading, even Tim, Tim Keller's stuff in The Reason for God is really good. If you read his chapter on this in The Reason for God, which I'm sure will be in the bookshop, uh, that's a great apologetics book as well. So, and then that'll get you into lots of other stuff once you start reading. So thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, how would you reconcile the role of death in evolution 
um, in relation to sin? Very good question. And you know, it's a real gift to be able to ask a question really simply. So um, I think it's going to sound stupid. I think you have to stand back and ask what death is in Genesis um, and what what it means. So for give an obvious example of a kind of problem with what you mean by death. In Genesis 3, I was reading it to just my, to my son, my seven-year-old, just the other day, where this, you know, God, God says, you know, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And my son said, but they did eat of it and they didn't die. And he was like trying to make sense of what do you mean? They're not, they're not on that day, they didn't die. And I had to say to him, no, Sam, that's because death in, the, in this context is about separation from God, which eventually feeds through into your biological death, the ceasing of your heartbeat, all that stuff. But actually what death means to the writer isn't what you think it means. So at that point you say, does spiritual death enter the world before the fall? No. But does, do any creatures die? You'd say, well, definitely, because the animals have been given permission to, and humans have to eat every plant. And so you think, well, actually, so you're gonna, you know, that plant is, you're gonna, you might chop that down. You might make a house out of it. You might make another one and grow it and pull up a potato and eat it. And you're, of course you can, of course things are gonna die in that sense. So the question then is, well, if this sort of death is assumed in the world of Genesis 1 and 2, but spiritual death isn't, where do you put animals on that spectrum? And I think the way I would answer is to, to me, I would, if you're evolutionary in your mindset, you would say, well, animals are created things, but not in the image of God. And as a result, they do die and that's fine. And a T-Rex or a lion or any or a shark or whatever, carnivorous creatures, God made them that way. And God loved them and he wanted them to be meat eaters. That's all part of God's beautiful plan. Human beings were, never, were not supposed to have that happen. And that's a tragedy. And that's about spiritual death, which is something that Genesis 3 is explicitly talking about. Would be a, a short version of my answer to that. It's a great question. Really, one of the best objections, I think. Thank you. Okay, we have got four minutes left, which means we've got four minutes left, which means I'm afraid we're not going to get through all of you. I'm very sorry about that. I'll keep going until we reach 12.30, though. Yes, sir. Hey, so um, very related to this uh, previous question. I appreciate you kind of closing the gap and showing there doesn't necessarily have to be a contradiction between evolution and uh, Christian theology. But my question then that comes off the back of that is, how central or essential should a historical Adam be to evangelical theology, particularly considering the Adam-Christ parallel, Romans 5, for instance? Very good question. I think that in some ways is the most important theological dilemma that people since the theory of evolution was proposed and sort of widely accepted in academic circles that evangelicals have to wrestle with, in my view. Like the other stuff is all good and valid, and, but I think that's probably the, the key one. Um, and I think probably, I'm going to look a little bit like I did with death actually, I'm going to stand back for a moment and say, so what are the, what are we, when we talk about historical Adam, what exactly is involved in that belief? So again, we have a spectrum from people who say there is a representative human in, hum, in whom all humans die, who genuinely sinned, and who is a federal head of the human race in whom we all die, just as Christ is, in whom we all come to life. If that's what we mean, that's very important, I think, to Christian theology. But on the other end of the spectrum, people use the word Adam to mean there is a sole biological male who is the exclusive, along with his 
partner, exclusive progenitor of every human being who ever lived. And there is no one alive today who has any antecedents who do not ultimately go back to that, that biological fountainhead. And I think that's a much stronger claim and it isn't necessarily required by the softer claim. And I would have more questions, more, I don't actually believe that that needs to be true. And I would go there, even in, the, even in the story of Genesis, I would go into, as people often do, Genesis 4, and the, who are these other people who are around that Cain is frightened of? Okay, they might be his brothers and sisters, but the story doesn't read like that. It reads like you have Cain, then Abel, and then Eve says, now the Lord has given me another son because Abel was killed, and I'm going to call him Seth. It makes it sound like she's only got three boys, and one of them's dead. So people say, these are his brothers and sisters, well... The story doesn't say that, and to me gives the impression that's not the case, which would imply there are lots of other people out there as well who the Bible just doesn't give us any information about. And I think at that point you can go back and say, well, so how does, where do we fit that then with the, you know, the hominin tree? Um, and, I'm, and there's lots of answers we could give there that fit extremely well with evolutionary theory. So, and that tends to be how I would handle it, but I'm not saying you should. That's just my view, and there'd be many people who would disagree, which is fine. At this end, we need historical Adam, as you put it. At this end, I don't think we do. And I think there's lots of bandwidth on that, personally. If that's, a, again, a short version, but there's lots more we could, you could... In fact, the Dennis Alexander book I mentioned before is very good on that question as well. Okay, this had better be the last one. Sorry. Um, I was going to ask a question about Adam and Eve, but it's kind of already been answered. So... Um, a point that loads of atheists make to combat Christianity is that um, the Bible says that the world has only been around for like 6,000 years. So how uh, did like creatures like dinosaurs and things, how did they uh, exist? And if they did exist, did they coexist with humans or like how did that kind of work? Okay, very good. Great question. And thank you. That's a great last question. Let's give him a round of applause as well. Um, wow. You got a really big round of applause. They like your question more than the others. Um, so the, uh, if you believe the earth is 6,000 years old, you will answer that question in a very different way to if you don't. So if you believe the earth is 6,000 years old, you will say God create all forms of life that exist now were originally alive at the same time. And you, then the dilemma you have is then how are you gonna square that with all of the evidence we have from science that suggests that the earth is older, the fossils, the record, the, all those sorts of things. And there are various ways of explaining that, which again, in that blog series I did, I said there's 10 models. Three of them are broadly young earthy, which is what you're talking about. Three or four of them are more old earthy and three or four of them are more evolution-y. Um, so if you're at that end, you would say, yeah, they all got created at the same time and that's fine. And then you have scientific questions to answer. That's personally not my view. My view is, but it doesn't, again, your pastors and the people, your youth workers, people here will disagree about this. I'm more at this end, I'm more at the evolutionary view and I, I think the earth is exactly as old as science suggests it is and that I don't think that Genesis is trying to tell us how old the earth is and I want to read it as an ancient text which I don't think is simply trying to give a chronology. I personally think that's just how the Bible talks about all kinds of things and when the Bible says the mustard seed is the smallest seed, that doesn't, when Jesus says that, he doesn't mean I am telling you that of all of the different phyla and genus and everything, this is the smallest seed. He's just saying, this is the smallest seed you know of and I'm going to use it as an example. And I think the Bible does that a lot. It, there is a degree of accommodation to our understanding and therefore the way it frames things uses categories we're familiar with to explain things. It's still true, but, it's, but you've got to read it more carefully than simply going, therefore that is a statement that scientifically I can just stick into this system 
thousands of years later. So that tends to be the way I do it, but there are a lot of other ways of doing it and people can be faithful believers and disagree on it, I think. Thank you so much for your question. And thank you so much for all of your questions. God bless you. Enjoy your lunch.